Last week, we began a new study series out of the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to do a study for seven weeks where we look at the seven churches of Revelation and the word seven or the number seven having the meaning of completion. Uh, they're letters for all churches of all time. And there's lessons even here for today at uh, Oakland Drive Christian Church. And what we're going to do is this. Beginning next week, at the conclusion of the sermon on the Church of Ephesus, we're going to have some study questions. And then, for those who would desire, we're going to stay till about noon and go into a classroom and then look at, well... Um, say, for instance, the book of uh, the Church of Ephesus. Uh, it was a wonderful church in many ways, but they had lost their first love. And we're going to look at, uh, well, what does a church look like that does love Jesus Christ primarily? And then all the good things that would flow out of that. We're going to do an appraisal, really, of this church and say, how are we doing? And then we're going to look at ourselves because the church is made up of individuals and how am I doing as far as having my first love be Jesus Christ in life. So we would invite you all to continue uh, on for those next seven weeks. And um, sort of like uh, going to Dr. Jesus uh, and get an appraisal of, of how we're doing. You know, the book of Revelation starts out and says the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, I already know all about him in the Gospels. Well, you've not seen him like you see him in the book of Revelation. It's a new unveiling of the glorified Jesus, and we're going to be looking at him in more detail here this morning as we would pick up at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We did verses 1 through 8 last week. And what I really like to do, and boy, I have precedent for it, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed, a unique blessing, are those who read these words aloud and those who hear them get the blessing and those who obey these things as well. So each week we'll start out this way, uh, reading the passage of Scripture that we're going to study. And, and by the way, as you came in, you should have picked up a, a little folder that gives the passage and notes that would help you to go along with it. But if you do this, stand in honor of God's word, and I'm going to read the passage that we're going to study. So if you would, please stand. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, may God bless us as we now proceed on to study this passage of scripture. Please be seated. Jesus Christ through an angel, gave this revelation to John. And he starts out in verse 9 here, and he says, I, John. Now, you can see by the picture here, he's an old man. And yet, if we look back, who is this John? Well, you may remember that uh, throughout Scripture, he's believed to be the youngest of the 12 disciples. That he uh, he's born into a fishing family, On the Sea of Galilee. And if you don't think that his world was small, they call it the Sea of Galilee. Do you know how big it is? It's 13 miles long and seven and a half miles wide. (laughs) And they call it a sea. He was born, it's believed that both John and his brother James, the sons of Zebedee, a fisherman, and uh, Philip and Peter and Andrew all came from a little town called Bethsaida. Sits right on the shores of Galilee there. And it means house of fish, fish house. His dreams would be to one day maybe own the fishing business like his father did, along with his brother James. And then he and his brother, being devout Jews, became followers of one called John the Baptist who said the Messiah was coming. And then one day they were there, and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And they went to Jesus, and they said, Where are you dwelling? He says, Come and see. They went with him, and John met Jesus, he and his brother James. Andrew was there. He ran and got his brother Peter. And then the rest of the story is, one day they were fishing, cleaning their nets, and Jesus came along, and he said, Drop your nets and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And he did. And his world changed drastically. As we follow him throughout the scriptures, we find that uh, he became a part of what's called the inner circle. Sometimes Jesus would take three of his disciples away privately for certain things. And it was Peter and James, his brother, and John. And uh, he got to be the one who... uh, Got to see the uh, raising up of Jairus' daughter from the dead. He was one of the three that went to the Mount of Transfiguration and saw the transfigured Jesus Christ. 
And he was one of the three that was called even closer aside in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, would you please pray with me? He was at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion in which Jesus said to him, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, take care of my mother. And he did. He thought that his life would be right there, and yet on those, that little shore, but he was also one of the ones that saw the empty tomb. He ran ahead of, his, of Peter, got to the tomb first. And then he was there at the ascension when Jesus ascended into heaven. And before that, he had said um, the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to, to every creature. I'm with you to the ends of the age, to the ends of the earth. He thought the ends of the earth for him would be maybe to make a 200-mile trip down to round trip to Jerusalem. He had no idea what would happen. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. He was there. And then his brother James, in the book of Acts, was the first of the 12 to be martyred. Eventually, all but Judas would be martyred of all that original 12 and only leaving John as an old man. In Acts 4, he was in prison with Peter. And then he wrote the Gospel of John and First and Second, Third John. And now is an old man believed to be about 90 years old. On the other side of the world, as far as he was concerned, in Ephesus, 1,200 miles from home, on an island, a penal colony by Rome, as an old man... Uh, he was in the Aegean Sea, and he knew what a sea really was. So when it says, I, John, that's who we're talking about here. A man who had seen Jesus ascend into the heavens, had walked with him for three years, and had not seen Jesus physically for 70 years. And yet, Jesus was as real to him as ever. As a matter of fact, uh, the book of First John starts out, and in the original language, this is about as close as it could be. That which I saw with my eyes, and I still see it in my mind's eye. Uh, that which I, I handled, and I can still feel it. Uh, that which I touched, I still feel him. That which I heard, and it still rings in my ears. That's who I'm declaring to you. He couldn't get over Jesus. He had uh, become... Uh, the leader of many, many churches that Paul had founded across modern-day Turkey, Galatia. And um, if you've ever been to Ephesus, they actually have a building there that they claim is, was uh, Mary's house where Mary's uh, buried. We don't know that. But John is somebody we ought to listen to. John knows. And especially, scholars believe it, about 90 years old, exiled to an island, he gets a revelation from Jesus Christ. And he writes this, I, John, your brother. Huh. We want to be a brother. We want to be a family with John. But then again, John's brothers tend to get martyred. His brother James had his head chopped off. Do you want to be his brother? And your partner. Again, I'd love to be a partner of John. But then again, it seems to be a dangerous thing to be a partner with John, in the tribulation. Now, they were under Domitian at this time, 
the Roman emperor, who was a madman, and declared that he wanted to be called son of God. <laughs> and you could have all your other gods, but you had to worship Domitian and offer incense each year. Well, the Christians wouldn't do that. In the tribulation, the word tribulation means in the crushing. It's used to making wine when you crush the grapes. In the crushing. Well, wait a minute. Um, I thought that you became a Christian and there was no more crushing. You know that little song, Climb, Climb Up Sunshine Mountain, Faces All Aglow? Has that been your experience? Since coming to Christ, has been nothing but climb, climb up Sunshine Mountain, been no valleys? When John, John says, I'm in tribulation. I've entered into the crushing experience that true followers of Jesus have. And the kingdom, he's my king, and I am in the kingdom now. Jesus said the kingdom of God is amongst you, although it's what's called the already and the not yet, not fully uh, in the kingdom. But for believers, we enter into the kingdom of God. But when we do, um, then there's kingdoms in conflict, as one famous uh, book was, uh, was uh, titled. We've entered into a conflict with the kingdom of this world. You know, John really, really wanted Jesus to set up his kingdom. So much so, I think this is probably one of the most embarrassing moments in his life. Do you remember, it says this in Matthew, that the mother of James and John went to Jesus and knelt down with her sons there and said, I, I have a request. And Jesus said, what's your request? I want my sons to be on your right and left when you set up your kingdom. And Jesus said, it's not for me to decide that. That's my father in heaven. And then it says there's a big fight amongst the other disciples. How dare you do that? Because they, they didn't get there first. They all wanted that. And then in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends into the heavens, um, they're told, why are you standing here gazing into the heavens? This same Jesus you saw leave is going to come as you saw him leave in the clouds. Uh, you go back, wait for the Holy Spirit. I got a job for you to do to take this message to the whole world. But what did they say to Jesus at the very end after he resurrected? Are you going to set up your kingdom now? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time of the season. It's only my father. You got a job to do. He did the job. He's been at it for 70 years. He's known a lot of tribulation. He is in the kingdom, but he's looking forward to that ultimate kingdom. And then it says, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Uh, the NIV says that are ours in Jesus. The patient endurance. Wait a minute, doesn't all this kind of fly in the face of the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preachers? You know, that you accept Jesus and he has this wonderful plan for your life. Everything's just going to come up peaches. That's not what the Bible says here. John, six times it says in John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a special affection for Jesus. Or Jesus had a special affection for him and vice versa. He's the one... That at the Last Supper, they would lean on their left elbow. And if you were right of the person, then your head was right at that person's chest. He's the one that had his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. And Jesus kindly had his head on the chest of 
Judas still trying to win him over. And Jesus loved him so much. And yet, Jesus allowed him to go through tribulation and patient endurance. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. I hope that you realize that if it's difficult, this journey of yours to stay true to Jesus, to have him rule as king, it takes patient endurance. You know, it's an interesting word. It's uh, in uh, Greek, it's the word makrothumia. And at one time, I had makrothumia as my password, and I was at the, uh, uh, the Apple store, and, and uh, the guy there said, uh, uh, go, go ahead and put in your uh, password. So I did, and he was a kid. And uh, uh, I said to, you, to him, I said, you know what that password was? He says, no. I said, it's a Greek word, macrothumia. It means to bear up and be extremely patient with difficulty and with difficult circumstances and difficult people. And he looked at me and goes, man, I need that password to work here. <laughs> and I think he was talking about with old geezers like me that's not really good with a computer like he is, you know, if you've ever been to those stores. We need a lot of patient endurance. Think of John, 90 years old, it's believed, been faithful to Jesus for the last 70 since he saw him. And things, there's a madman. He got away from Rome. His, his homeland was destroyed by the Romans. It was against the law at that time for a Jew to enter into the city of Jerusalem. They'd die if they did. Rome was running. It, it ruined the entire countryside, including the, all the villages around the Sea of Galilee. His homeland destroyed. His home destroyed. Friends and relatives all killed. He's 70 miles from, or 1,200 miles from home. Still ruled by Rome, and now even crazier leaders. And yet, with all that, he says, I was on this island called Patmos. If, um, if you ever go to Ephesus, then you can take a ship over. Uh, it's about 50 miles, I think. And it's uh, a small island, but it, it's no vacation place. It was a penal colony for Rome. I was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why did he send me over there to this, to break rocks as an old man? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because I preached the word of God, declared Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. The testimony of who Jesus was. Let me share with you something that's... Uh, Tr troublesome to me today. Um, the world will not get upset at you, at us, if we do good deeds. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give a cup of cold water, but you better not do it in Jesus' name. <laughs> you can even do it in the name of God. For God, we do this for God. God's generic. Make a God any... But when you start saying, I'm giving this cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, and you start preaching the word of God, telling people that they have a, something much deeper wrong with them, that they're sinners in need of forgiveness, and they can only be washed by the blood of Jesus and be right with God, you're going to know what it's like to have some tribulation. 
Again, if you only do good deeds, the world will applaud you. But don't you start preaching to them the word of God or the testimony of Jesus. You might end up on the Isle of Patmos in a sense. And yet, listen to this. Was he bemoaning that fact? Was he saying, how did this ever happen? No. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. (laughs) I love that. Circumstances are terrible. but, But for me personally, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, scholars disagree as to what this means. Was this a unique, the spirit came over him for this special revelation? Maybe so. I personally think he woke up and it was Sunday, the day that you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ who conquered death, who's king of kings and lord of lords, hasn't set it all up yet. But I know it's coming. He had a positive attitude. We can have a positive attitude in tribulation because we know what's ahead. We know what the truth is. And he said, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, this trumpet call was not taps, like go to sleep. This is reveling. Get up. (laughs) I heard this loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches of Revel, uh, the seven churches, and we have that right here. That's what the book of Revelation is. We have that book. He said, "I want you to send it to Ephesus." We're going to look at that letter, and that was a church that did everything right, but not out of a heart of love. And Jesus is very upset with him. Jesus, the seven characteristics Jesus wants in a church. This church, every church for all time. He wants a love relationship. And to Smyrna, a church that got an A-plus on their report, nothing wrong with them. They were going through extreme persecution, but they were faithful. I want a faithful church. And the church of Pergamum, a truthful church. I want one that stays true to truth in a city of lies. And to Thyatira, a pure church in a polluted society. Enter the church of Sardis. I went in a live church. This church, he said, you think you're alive? You're dead. I went in a live, active church. To the church of Philadelphia, a church that got a good report too because they were sharing the word of God. He wants a sharing church, one that talks about him. And then to Laodicea, a serving church rather than a selfish church. He said, I want you to send these letters to those seven churches. And then I turned to see this voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we had a picture of some lampstands earlier. The thing about a lampstand, they have a purpose. But they don't produce the light. They're a lampstand. They're not a light. And a church is like that. The church is a lampstand. And it's uh, golden, meaning it's of tremendous worth. But it has no light of its own. And in the midst of the lampstands, there was one like a son of man. (laughs) Now, that was Jesus' favorite term for himself. 81 times in the Gospels, Jesus called himself the son of man. What does he mean? Comes out of Daniel chapter uh, 
7.13, where it says, There was one like the Son of Man who came with the clouds from heaven. He, he's God, and yet he's man. He's, he really relates to man. He's the God-man. That's what it's saying. Human, and yet divine. And in the midst of the lampstands, there's one that looked like a man, but certainly didn't look like any ordinary man. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. You know, as you read scholars, they'll argue over this. They'll say, well, that was the, the, the robe of a priest. Other good scholars say, no, no, it's, it's the robe of a king. Others will say, no, no, it's, a, it's the, the robe of a judge. Do you know what I think the answer is? Yes. Because <laughs> he's all three. I'm not going to argue. I think maybe it's just saying there was one with this long robe because he was a priest, the high priest. He's the king. He's the judge. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. What's that the image of? This is all symbolic language. He was wise. (laughs) You know, it says in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 16, verse 31, uh, uh, gray hair is seen amongst the godly. You got to... now, the difficulty is, have you ever met any people with gray hair that weren't very godly? <laughs> that sure proves that the book, or the book of Proverbs is generalities and not, you know, always true. But especially in that day, if you lived to be old, <laughs> it's because you were godly. It was a rough world. And, but what it does say, it's, it's the wisdom of experience. He had a lot of wisdom. He was the ancient of days. He was wise. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, penetrating. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His his feet were pure. Boy, when Jesus walked this earth, his feet were pure, weren't they? And yet, he went through trouble as well. But he always walked perfectly. His voice was like the roar of many waters, <laughs> drowned all, all other sounds. You ever been to Niagara Falls? If you're talking to somebody, you're saying, what, 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 why? Because of the roar of Niagara Falls. You know, I had a thought on this. There are so many voices out there. Would to God that the voice of Jesus drowned out all other voices, correct? Make much of the word of God. Even, even don't fall into always reading what other people say about the Word of God. Whenever I read any other books, I always read it with a filter on. It's refreshing to go to the Bible, and I don't critique it. It critiques me, as we're going to see here in a moment as well. But make certain that his voice through the Word of God drowns out all other voices, like Niagara Falls does, that roar. In his right hand, he held uh, seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. There's several things. Uh, We're going to see here in a moment. He said, I fell down like a dead man. No wonder. What are these? He's going to tell later that these seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches. His mouth, a two-edged sword. What does that mean? Well, the word of God. Is like a sharp two-edged sword, right? It says that in Scripture, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
uh, Zechariah, when Jesus was born, said, the sunrise has dawned. And you could look right at the baby Jesus. He's safe. The sunrise had dawned. But here it says, now the sun is shining in its full strength. I, I could hardly look at him. All of his power in his face. It was like full noon trying to stare into the sun. And out of his mouth came this two-edged sword. Well, we know that the scriptures are called symbolically many things in scripture. Here's a few. The word of God is like a mirror, James says. It's like a seed. It's like water. It's like a lamp. It's milk. It's meat. It's bread. It's honey. It's hammer. It's fire. It's a sword. So, Carol, when you say we're going to have a Bible study, be careful. (laughs) You might get cut, right? Because Ephesians 6.17 says the word of God is the sword of the spirit. It's the word of God. He'll use it to cut into your heart. Because Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this. The word of God is sharp and powerful. One translation says it's alive and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul, the spirit, the joints, the marrow. And it is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That word uh, discerner is a very interesting word in Greek. It's the word kritikos. What does that sound like? Critique. It's what it means. The word of God will critique you to the very core of your being. It's like it's alive and it's active. Whenever I think of that, um, I think of uh, Nimrod. Nimrod was a big black lab that belonged to my neighbor, and we lived in a cul-de-sac for years. And in the morning, um, the gentleman next door would be out in Nimrod with him in the cul-de-sac. We'd talk. And Nimrod, as uh, old labs do, got hip dysplasia. And uh, if that dog, if it was raining out, that dog would sit on the front porch and just moan. And then when it tried to get up, it was arthritic, you know. Well, I was out there with him one time. Nimrod was up on the porch, and a guy pulled into the cul-de-sac, mad as could be. Stopped his car and got out and says to my neighbor, is that your black lab? He said, yeah. He goes, keep it out of my yard. He jumps my fence and gets into my yard. He goes, not my black lab. He said, yeah, it is. That black lab right there has been coming to my house, jumping the fence. (laughs) Jim uh, looked over at Nimrod and goes, Nimrod, come here, Nimrod. Nimrod goes, (laughs) this guy goes, I'm sorry, it's not your dog. (laughs) You see, Nimrod was alive, but he was not active. He couldn't get the job done. The word of God, it's alive and it's active. It, It jumps off the porch. It'll come after you. Then why do we go to it? Don't we want to be critiqued by the Spirit of God? Don't we want to, as we've been singing, be all that we can be to pure, be pure? Yeah, and the Holy Spirit will work that in you. And But sometimes when they hold up the mirror, we're a little embarrassed by what we see, just like John was probably embarrassed when people later would remind him, hey, remember when you and James went and said, brought your mother and had her bow down? It's just stop. I don't want to hear about it. And then he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He had not seen Jesus for 70 years, and now he shows up like this. But 
He laid his right hand on me. Perhaps the last time they actually touched was at the Last Supper. And he said, fear not. I'm the first and I'm the last. I got everything started and I'll close everything down. And I am the living one. I died. You know that. You saw me crucified. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I conquered death. I, uh, I went to the place of the unseen dead, Hades, and I came out, and I have the keys. I'm in charge of death. You don't have to be afraid of death or the afterlife because I'm in charge of it. I have the keys. It's a story that will never end. Death cannot conquer the believer. Do you know that? You know, uh, uh, this guy I, I met at a health club, I saw him not long ago, and his name's Bob. Bob says to me, he goes, uh, hey, I turned 75. I said, you did? Well, happy birthday. He said, yeah. He said, I'm, I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to get a tattoo today. And I said, you have any tattoos? Nope. Be my first one. And he said, you know where I'm getting it at? I said, no. He goes, right across my chest. He said, is that right? And, of course, he was setting me up. I said, well, what's it going to say? Do not resuscitate. <laughs> and then he was just joking with me. You don't have to worry about facing death if you know the one who has the keys of death and Hades, the afterlife. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, that's chapter 1, those that are, chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches, and the things that will take place after that, chapters 4 through the rest. As for the mystery, and a mystery is something that's known only to God and those whom he's revealed it to, he's going to actually interpret this one. Believe me, there's some things in the book of Revelation that I just scratch my head off, and I think I can't figure that one out. But this one's clear. He interprets it for us. He said, the seven stars you saw on my right hand and the golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, you may find some scholars that will say those seven, uh, the word angel is the word messenger, and it means the, the, the pastor of that church. I really don't think that's true because the book, the word angel in the book of Revelation is used 67 times in every other place. It means a real angel. So I would think it does here that somehow, and we could even say perhaps here at Oakland Drive Christian Church, there's an angel assigned to this particular church. Many believe even each individual has a guardian angel. Uh, my mother used to say, mine's going to be worn out by the time I, I, I die. Maybe so. I believe that's true, that each church has a, an angel assigned to that church. And, it, but it's a messenger. The seven churches are the seven lampstands, are the seven churches. That every church is to be a lampstand. 
Oakland Drive Community Church, or uh, Christian Church, is a lampstand that has no light in and of itself, but it's meant to hold the light, and we were singing about it. The light of the world is none other than Jesus himself, or I believe you, you read a passage uh, about that. Do you remember that song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine? It's got some good theological truth to it there. This light here, in this church, needs to shine. And the only shining is in itself. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord through through uh, the church. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness. And yet, he also looked to his people in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set up on a hill can't be hidden. Don't put a light under a bushel, but take it out so to give light so that everybody can see. So Jesus being the light of the world, if he's in an individual, then that person is the light of the world. But what if a church was really lit up? It'd be like a city set up on a hill that just can't be hidden. So our light should shine. I remember uh, one time I went to a pastor's conference at Moody Bible Institute, and they had a really old gentleman named Vance Havner that got up to speak. And uh, they actually had to help him to the platform. He looked like he weighed about 100 pounds. And he got up there, and he said, uh, this way he talked. Guy here in Chicago, bright, sunny day. They took me to one of those underground restaurants. It was dark in there. Sat down, couldn't even read the menu. So dark in there. But after a while, I noticed I could read the menu. He said, I guess I got used to the dark. And then he looked at the whole audience of pastors. He said, are you getting used to the dark? And then he was off on the fact that we can get pretty used to the dark and not even know what light is. You know, my son lives in Colorado, right by the Rockies. Whenever I go visit, I'm just amazed. They have over 300 sunny days a year. I think that's what Portage gets, right? <laughs> Maybe they get the other 65. <laughs> you know. and it's like, my goodness, the sun shines bright all the time out here. But you get used to the Midwest where you have a lot of clouds. What about our lives? Do you think that maybe we've gotten used to the dark? I think we do. And then we shouldn't just curse the darkness, but light a light. I shared with you last week, I, I belonged to this hiking club, and we went up to Dr. Lawless uh, State Park, and it's close to Jones, Michigan. And uh, I pulled it up online just to make certain I had this straight. Dr. Lawless was a doctor in Chicago who owned land in Michigan, and he liked land was way out where nobody was around. And it's so dark out there that it is an internationally registered dark sky park. Meaning you go out there at night, look up the sky, you, you see some stars because there's no other lights around. Well, there's so many lights around supposedly, but the thing about why do people go there? People travel internationally to go to this park. 
Because the stars shine brightest when it's the darkest. So rather than cursing the darkness, and boy, it's, we're get, it's dark out there. Don't get used to the dark. Maybe it could be our finest hour because in the darkness we really shine. Amen? Well, this little light of ours, let's let it shine, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, easier said than done. Uh, John was sure shining on the Isle of Patmos in that darkness. Thank you that he did. Jesus walked in a dark world, and he was the light of the world. And Jesus, you've said that through your spirit, we as individuals and we corporately can, can be a light in the darkness of this world. Help us not to get used to the dark, but shine even brighter. Work this in our hearts individually and corporately as a church. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Won't you please stand as we sing? <laughs>